You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Again, glad you are here. Genesis chapter 12, again, is where we're going to be. But before I read, uh, I want to share with you a story. A couple months ago, I was eating with the elders at Chuck and Lindy Deschwin's house. Um, and it was a fabulous meal. It was pork tenderloin, uh, rosemary potatoes, and broccoli with Parmesan cheese sprinkled on top. And, and it was so good. Yeah, it was fantastic. So good that I told Chuck and Lindy, I was like, you have to share this recipe with me so I can duplicate it in my own home. And so them being the generous people they are, they gave us the recipe. And then fast forward a few weeks, I told my wife specifically, go to the store, get these exact ingredients, and let's cook this meal the exact same way that Chuck and Lindy did so that we can have the same experience. So I uh, go to work, she goes to the grocery store, eventually I come home from a hard day's work and I'm expecting to basically have pork tenderloin prepared for me to come and grill and us eat the exact same meal. However, when I go to grab the pork tenderloin out of the refrigerator, I discover that it's in a completely different marinade than Chuck and Lindy marinated their pork in. Um, now, I, I, I knew this was something, was something was off, but I look at Megan and I say, um, hey, can you tell me what's going on with this? And, uh, and she said, yeah, with what? And I said, is this the same marinade that Chuck and Lindy used? And she said, no. Okay, let me tell you something before I go any further. I want to give you a little background before I go any further in the story. <laughs> I, I come from what psychologists would call a cold culture, which does not mean that my family was mean. It just means we were task-oriented, that we valued things like efficiency, uh, structure, <laughs> and everything has a place. Uh, my wife, however, comes from what uh, psychologists call a warm culture. They're not task-oriented. They're relationship-oriented. They're a little bit more about comfort, uh, just kind of like freedom, just togetherness and, and fun and happiness and all of that. Um, and most things in, in, in their life didn't really necessarily have to have a place, which is why, for example, side note, um, one of the biggest arguments that Megan and I have had since uh, we've been married 10 years ago is uh, the fact that repeatedly there are times where I will walk into a our room and I will find a pile of her dirty clothes sitting five feet from the laundry basket. And so uh, I'm like, can you please help me understand this? I mean, it's actually more work on you to not just like put them in the laundry basket right away, but instead to throw them on the floor, then later go pick up and then put them in the laundry basket. But anyways, I don't know if anybody else deals with that, but point, point is I grew up in a cold culture. She grew up in a warm culture. Therefore, please hear me. I grew up in a home where a recipe is something you follow. Right? Um, where it's there for a reason, right? There's a reason why it says onion powder and not garlic powder, right? You can't just like swap them out as you feel like is necessary. My wife, however, grew up in a home where a recipe is uh, more like a suggestion. I'll just say that. 
And so therefore, there are times like this that happened three weeks ago where I walk in and I find out that despite the fact that I'm expecting this pork tenderloin meal to be exactly like the recipe, it's different. And I wish I could say I had the spiritual maturity to just be like, oh, you know what? I'm just thankful that we have food to move on. But that would be a lie. And so I basically looked at Megan and I said, this makes no sense to me. Why would you do this? And then I got angry at her. She got angry at me. I said some things to her I shouldn't have. She said some, uh, some things to me I probably deserve, but she still shouldn't have. And we began to argue. And eventually after 10 to 15 minutes, I just grabbed the pork and I was like, fine. And I go out there and I cook it. And by the way, it was actually really good. <laughs> but do you think I told her it was good? Absolutely not. And so we actually, for the rest of the meal, she sat at one end of the table, I sat at the other end, and we didn't say a word to each other. We sulked, and I was passive-aggressive, and eventually we went to bed, and, and whatever, you know, we, I think we eventually forgave ourselves, right? And I've forgiven you, you've forgiven me. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I use that non-dramatic real-life example Because I think it captures something. What it captures is this truth that cuts across the library of Scripture and the fabric of creation. And it's the reality that our present is shaped by our past. Or put another way, who we are is in many ways shaped by where we come from. There's a cause and effect relationship between your family of origin and the person you are today. And when you think of family of origin, don't just think of your mom and your dad and your siblings, but also think of your extended family that dates back even three to four generations. Uh, Dr. Rachel Yuda, who is a pioneer in the field of epigenetics, which just means that she studies how environment literally shapes our genetic code. Real simple stuff. You all get it, right? Um, She spent time at the New York Mount Sinai Hospital where she isolated a stress hormone that was found in Holocaust survivors. And what was fascinating about her research is that upon testing the the, the survivors from concentration camps, she went on to test the survivors' children and then their grandchildren. And what she found is fascinating. And what she discovered was that the exact same stress hormone was passed actually to all three generations, which means that the trauma that we experience in our past is literally passed down from one generation to another, which then tells us that when we experience pain or trauma, unless it is dealt with in a healthy way, rather than the pain and the trauma dying off, it actually lives on for generations to come. This is why philosopher George Santana says the following, those who cannot learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. Put another way, unless we understand how we have been shaped by our past, the odds are actually really high that patterns that have been developed in our family history will live on, for better or worse, in us. This is why Pete Scazzaro, who is a pastor and an author who has had a massive impact on our church, writes the following. In an emotionally healthy churches, people understand how their past affects their present ability to love Christ and others. They've realized from the scriptures and life that intricate, complex relationships exist between the kinds of person they are today and their past. Numerous external forces may shape us, but the family we have grown up in is the primary, and except in rare instances, the most powerful system that will shape and influence who we are. That being said, we believe as pastors that one of our key tasks in our discipleship to Jesus is dealing with our past. Identifying 
patterns or unhealthy coping mechanisms that we have inherited from our family so that we can learn how to break free from those patterns for the purpose of becoming the men and women that Jesus has created us to be. And I know that when I say this, that for some of you, this immediately raises red flags in your mind. I begin to think this past week of maybe one of three objections you may even have right now. For example, one objection you may have is, wait a minute, Jared, isn't that bad? Like, isn't it bad for us to revisit our past? I mean, since I'm a follower of Jesus, shouldn't we just like, you know, forget the past and move on? And I get that. I grew up in a church where we didn't even talk about emotional health. or I don't even know if we knew what it was. And we would quote verses like Philippians 3.13 where Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward to what lies ahead. And we'd say, see, let's just forget all that stuff in the past and let's move on together. And that sounds really good. But what you need to understand is when you read the Bible, if you want to know how to interpret the Bible, let me tell you there's three rules to interpret the Bible. You ready? Rule number one, context. Rule number two, context. And rule number three is context. Right? And in the context, whenever Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward to what lies ahead, what he is saying here is not that we should forget about our family history or our trauma or that time whenever dad walked out on the family, but rather what Paul's referring to here is his wealth, his health, his power, and his privilege. He's talking about all the stuff he gave up in order to be a follower of Jesus. And what he's saying is, I no longer find my joy, I no longer find my identity or self-worth in that stuff anymore, but I find it completely in Christ. And yet for some of us, we still say like, oh, we should never talk about the past. Another objection that some of us have is, you know, actually, Jared, I don't mind going back and visiting the past. It's just, I don't think I need to, right? I mean, sure, this is a great series for a lot of people in the room, but I come from a line of awesomeness, right? And, and, and therefore, like, I don't have any issues from my family. And again, I get this. I come from a great family, I mean, just this morning, my mom sent me a message and said, hey, I'm praying for you as you preach today. Uh, both of my parents are still together. Those who know my mom uh, will say things like, man, she's one of the most loving, incredible people I've ever met in my life. My dad is a great man, still passionate, and they're very well respected in the community. But here's the thing. No matter how great your family is, every parent is a sinner. Which means every family, on one level or another, is dysfunctional. Can I get an amen? Amen. No matter how amazing your family is, every family has at least some issue or issues that we all have carried into adulthood. And listen, as a dad, I hate this. Because I know that what this means is no matter how hard I try, I'm still going to screw my kids up in some way, shape, or form. Right? Like No matter how hard I try, I still, at times intentionally and sometimes unintentionally, will wound or hurt or misshape my kids in ways that are contrary to the way of Jesus. Just a couple weeks ago, I was at Lowe's with my kids, and they wanted to ride in one of those little race cars, which was a bad idea. But I let them get in it, and we're going through, and I stop stop to talk to one of the employees at Lowe's, and and I'm trying to get help. And both of my kids, they're they're seven and uh, about to be six, are jumping up and down in the race car. And of course, I'm thinking to myself the whole time, there's a chance this guy could know I'm a pastor, so I'm just going to politely ask my kids to stop so that I can try to be like, oh man, he's so you're so calm and holy, sir. And so I'm just like, hey, Wyatt, Nora, would y'all please just calm down for a moment? And daddy's going to talk. We're almost done. And, and, and before I even turn back around, Nora flips out of the car, 
The cart then begins to fall over on her. I grab her with one hand, grab the cart with the other, and push it back up, still like remaining my composure. I finish my conversation with the man, but when I walk around the corner, I look at Nora and I'm like, hey, how about a thank you for the fact I just saved your life? (laughs) Which she, listen to this. This will make you mad just hearing it. She looks at me, and here's what she said. You didn't save my life. And I said, yeah, this was about to fall over on you. And she said, well, I didn't see it. If I didn't see it, it doesn't count. (laughs) And so at that point, I said, okay, fine. Well, next time, I just won't see it, and I'll let you fall and hit your head on the concrete and bleed all over the place. (laughs) To which my son responds, Dad, give her some grace. (laughs) 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 To which I responded, how about I give you some grace? You know, it's like... And that's just one example of many that reminds me, though I hope I do more good than bad, though I hope I, you know, will pass on more blessing than sin, the reality is I'm clearly still not perfect. I am still a work in progress, and therefore there are times where I will wound, hurt, and misdirect my kids. A third objection is this. Jared, it's not that I think going back and visiting the past is bad or that there's nothing there, but rather... It's quite the opposite for me. I know something is there. And and, and to be quite honest, I'm just not up for this. I I do not want to open this can of worms. And listen, if that's where you are, that's okay. Fellowship is a safe place where we let you grow in God's timing and not our timing. And so as we dive into this series, if you don't want to do these practices with us this time around, you just want to set this out and watch from a distance, that's perfectly fine. But please hear me. You need to realize that if you will not deal with your past your past will deal with you. This stuff is not going to go away. And because it will not go away, if you refuse to face it head on, you will at best, the older you get, have to just self-medicate in order to deal with the pain. And by self-medicate, I don't just mean pills. I'm talking about also pornography. I'm talking about video games, pot, Netflix, overworking, even religion. We can use that as time as a cover-up. Rather than dealing with the root issue, you will spend your life managing your symptoms, which means you will miss out on the true and lasting healing that Jesus wants to bring to you. And again, if that's where you are, I'm so glad you're here. But if you're here and you're tired of uh, symptom management, if you're tired of just distracting yourself and you think you're ready to go on this journey, then um, let me just share with you kind of where we're going to be going. Okay, There's three things we're going to be focusing on first week, this, which is this week. We're going to talk about generational sin how the sin of our parents and grandparents impact our life today. Uh, Next week, Adam is going to come up and he's going to talk about narrative scripts, uh, which is just this idea that we are narrative creatures and therefore whenever we experience trauma and pain in our past, we cannot help but create a story and then we live out that story the rest of our lives. And sometimes those stories are really beautiful and it's in line with the gospel and sometimes it's really broken and out of step with the gospel and therefore destructive. And he's going to talk about that. And then if we survive the first two weeks, week three, we're going to talk about generational blessing. And so how to create a beautiful and lasting legacy, how to begin to walk into healthy patterns that impact generations to come. Does that make sense? And so for today, though, I want to lay just a biblical theology of generational sin from the scriptures, and then we'll end with just a real practical next step, something we can practice together in community. So Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1, look with me. Now the Lord said to Abram, who would later have his name changed to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in this story, God comes to a man named Abram, and he says, I want you to be an agent of my blessing to the world. I want you to be a conduit of how I'm going to choose to work through for the purpose of putting the world back together. And what's crazy is that in this story, Abraham leaves everything that he knows, his comfort, his friend, all of his uh, his money. I mean, he leaves it all behind in order to follow God's call on his life. So this is an incredible man. This is a man of great faith, but just because he's a man of faith doesn't mean he has his whole life together. And in fact, uh, flip down with me to Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Look at this. Now there was a famine in the land... So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearances. Now before you're like, oh, just wait. He's up to something. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sakes. You see how dysfunctional this marriage is? When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the prince of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dwelt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So he gave Abram a bunch of money. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because Sarah was Abram's wife. So Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then go, here is your wife, please, right? Get out of here. It's a crazy story. Abram tells his wife literally to lie about the true nature of their relationship. And why does he do this? He puts his wife at risk, notice, in order to save his own neck and make a lot of money. And that's just the beginning. Look in chapter 20. Go to chapter 20 and look in verses 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. I love to hear the pages turning in the scripture. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned to Gerar. And Abraham said to his, uh, said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now skip down to verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all the servants and told them all of these things. And by all of these things, what happened is he took Abraham's wife, thinking it's his sister, but God shows up to King Abimelech in a dream and says, don't touch Abraham's wife. He's like, wait a minute. He said, she's my sister. He's like, yeah, he's, I'm working on him. It's actually his wife. Don't, don't mess with, don't do anything or I will bring consequences on your kingdom. So he's telling uh, his servants about this. And the men were very much afraid, verse 9, and Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What is it you have done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. So now the exact same thing happens, which means this is not just a one-time slip-up. An Abrahamic, whoops, right? Like, this is a deep, ingrained, ongoing sin in Abraham's life. And check this out. It's actually passed down from father to son, from generation to generation. Flip over to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis 26. Abraham has two sons from two different moms. Long story, don't have time to go into it. 
But these sons absolutely do not get along because Isaac is his father's favorite. And in chapter 26, verse 1, we read about Isaac. It says this, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. So you're starting to see some deja vu here. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Skip down to verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, Ah, she's my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Verse 8, Whenever he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. And Abimelech said, what is this that you have done to us? So now Isaac does the exact same thing. Catch this. He does the exact same thing as his father in the exact same city with the exact same king. It's almost like children can repeat the mistakes of their kids. And guess what? It's passed down to the next generation from father to son and now to grandson. Flip over to chapter 27. Chapter 27, Isaac now has two boys, a set of twins, Jacob and Esau, and Esau is his favorite. And because he's now playing favoritism, look what happens. Verse 18, chapter 27, verse 18. So Jacob went into his father and said, Father, and he said, Here I am. He said, Who are you, my son? So his, his dad was actually blind, not able to see. And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may be blessed. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And Jacob answered, Because the Lord your God has granted me success. So now Jacob lies straight to his dad's face. And if you know the rest of the story, I mean, this is just the first of many lies. I mean, Jacob becomes, in the story of the Scripture, somewhat of a con man. Uh, his name actually in the Hebrew means a liar or a deceiver. And the point is, this generational sin of lying it's not only living on, it's getting worse. Okay, And now it's going to pass down from, from, from Jacob to Jacob's son. So, so now we're four generations deep. Flip over to uh, chapter 37, last place I'll have you turn to. Genesis 37. And I want you to see this. Jacob has not two sons, but 12, and not from two wives, but get this, four wives. So again, getting worse, not getting better. And of Jacob's 12 sons, he has a favorite son who goes by the name of, anybody know? Joseph, very good, right? And I want you to read this, chapter 37, verse 2. Joseph, now being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilphi and Zilpah and his father's wives. Joseph bought a bad report to them of their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. Skip all the way down to verse 31. Then they took Joseph, this is Joseph's brothers, they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood, and they sent the robe of many colors, and they bought it to their father and said, look what we found, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe, a fierce animal has devoured him, Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. So notice how the con man is being conned. The liar is now being lied to. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus the father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph, so he's not dead. The Midianites had sold Joseph to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. 
So you're starting to see a pattern here. Starts with Abraham, goes to Isaac, from uh, Isaac to Jacob, from Jacob then on to his sons. And over these four generations, we actually see four generational sins that I'll put on the screen for you. The first one is pretty obvious. We see the generational sin of lying. Abraham lies twice about Sarah. Isaac does the exact same thing with his wife. Jacob lies to almost everyone. Ten of Jacob's kids lie about Joseph's death, their brother faking his funeral, keeping a family secret for ten years. Next, we also see favoritism. Abraham favored Isaac. Isaac favored favored Esau. Jacob favored Joseph. We also see sibling rivalry, and not just kind of like your typical sibling rivalry, like Isaac and Ishmael were cut off from one another. Jacob ran from Esau, and Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And then, of course, you see a dysfunctional marriage. Abraham had a child out of wedlock with Hagar. Isaac had a terrible relationship with Rebekah. And Jacob had four different wives. So, Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had issues just like Father Abraham. Right? Not the version we're going to get in Sunday school. But yet, here it is in the Bible. And a lot of this story, I would say there are at least three things that we need to take away today. The first is this. A parent's sin has consequences for their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. And I could give you a lot of examples. Um, One I will use, and I know this is a touchy subject, but if you think about divorce, um, oftentimes it is the children more than the parents have to deal with the fallout. Despite our culture's ridiculous PR campaign that says divorce is a danger-free zone for kids, as most of you know, that's a sham. That is a lie. And as a result of divorce, a lot of times we have to deal with emotional pain and trust issues and insecurity and a fear of commitment later in life. And sure, there are exceptions to the rule. Some of you are like, man, my parents were divorced when I was seven and I'm fine. And I would say, praise God for that. But that's not most people's story. And that is because oftentimes when parents or grandparents sin, we have to deal with the consequences of that. We don't just see that in the story. We see it also in other places like Exodus 34, 7, where it says that God visits the iniquity, or that word can be translated consequences, of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So consequences are passed down. It gets even worse than that. Not only do we see consequences are passed down, but sins also run in the family. In other words, just like your DNA, just like the color of your hair or the color of your skin or the color of your eyes or your sense of humor, sin is passed down through a genetic code from parent to child and then to grandchild, which means, and I know this is not popular, but as much as we want to believe in the innocence of our own children, especially we want to believe in the innocence of like our like specific children, the reality is none of us are born with a blank slate. And for the record, like please hear me. I absolutely, totally believe 100% that every child is made in the image of God with incredible worth and beauty and purpose as a result of that. But I also believe, according to the scriptures and what I see from my own experience, is that from our first breath, something's off kilter. Um, Something is bent into the wrong direction. And not just in a generic sense, but in a very specific sense, based off of the sins of our parents. And if you think about it, we know this is true. Think about that saying where we say, like, father, like son, or like mother, like daughter, or the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. This is why many of us have said said things like, I will never be like my mom. And then one day we're in the car and the kids are acting the fool or in the grocery store and we say something and we're like, oh my gosh, it sounded just like my mom. Why is that? Why is that? Because according to the scripture, and as we saw earlier, even according to science, we inherit when we're born, not only the good from our parents, but also the bad. 
And that is really bad news this morning. But let me tell you the good news, and I want you to please hear this. And if you're kind of falling asleep, you can wake back up in this moment. Though consequences run throughout our family line and generational sins run throughout our family line, the reality is you can break free from that sin no matter how far it goes back. I want to say that again. You can break free from sin that goes back for generations. No matter who you are or where you come from. Because listen, the truth is mercy is waiting for you. You can, with the help of the Holy Spirit and in the context of community, break free from the bondage of sin. Whether it be sin that is done by you, sin that's been done to you through abuse or betrayal or neglect, or sin that's been done around you, which has created issues. All of that, guys, can be broken. Say, wait a minute, Jared, all of it? Yes, all of it. Well, Jared, you just don't know about my dad. All of it. You have no idea what it was like to grow up in my shoes. All of it can be broken. The reality is this morning, though your past has shaped your present, it does not have to determine your future. You can begin to change. You can experience more and more of the life God created you to experience. And if you're ready to go on this journey, if you're ready to get unstuck in some of the unhealthy patterns of living that has marked your family for years, here's the next step. The next step in your discipleship to Jesus is to grow in self-awareness. To begin to do the hard work of identifying generational sin and unhealthy patterns in your family that has been passed down to you. And the whole idea behind this is, listen, you cannot change what you cannot see. You cannot grow and mature without self-awareness. And therefore, as a practice this week to help you grow in self-awareness, we are going to call the members of this church to do the geneogram. And if you're like, the geno what? I'll just put the definition on the screen for you. A geneogram is a visual map of your family tree that's used to identify patterns in your family line, whether it be good or bad. And you can actually go online and you can Google geneogram and how to and find all sorts of information and that will be helpful for you. But if you want a hands-on practical experience this week to help you learn how to do the geneogram, uh, one of my good friends, John Fleming, who's the pastor of First United Methodist Church, is going to come on Wednesday. And from 12 to 1, we're just going to do a free mini geneogram workshop for anybody who wants to show up for that. Just bring your lunch or you can fast through lunch, whatever you want to do. We'll send out a link through your MCs and on the Facebook group where you can uh, sign up for that so we know how many chairs to set out. But we'll do a hands-on geneogram workshop this Wednesday, 12 to 1. And if you want kind of a visual of what this looks like, so you know if you need to show up, I'm going to give you kind of, here's an edited version of mine. Can we put that on the screen of my genogram? So this is, I know it's going to be hard to see, uh, but this is a very edited version, and I edited it because I didn't want to air all of my family's dirty laundry out for all of you. But if you can read this, what you see is at the top, you have uh, my grandparents, you have George and Thelma, then my mom's parents, James and Betty, and then below them are their kids, and of course, my mom and my dad, and they came together, and they had my brother Grant, and then you see me um, with Megan and my kids. And what I begin to do is I basically you start by mapping out your family tree, and we'll show you how to do this. And then you begin to fill in any information that comes to mind that you think is important. So for me, just on this one, again, this is edited, but you see death and divorce, cancers, careers, right? Just beginning to take note of patterns that have been passed down. 
And as I began to do this, I had several aha moments. One kind of cool moment, by the way, um, was I was doing this with John over a year ago in my uh, old office in the back of the building. And as I was doing it, I realized my grandfather used to work at Wilburn's Grocery, um, which was right over here. I could see from my window and my grandfather at the dairy plant. And literally my office is right in between where my grandfather used to work at. Just kind of cool. Um, but on a much deeper level, some of you know that I am a performance junkie or trying to recover from that, and I tend to be uh, given over to perfectionism, which creates all sorts of relational issues, not just my relationship with God, but with others and myself. And I'm getting a lot better, but still have a long ways to go. And as I began to do this, I realized that those sins that I struggle with actually didn't start with me that it runs throughout my family. And so um, just if I look at my mom's side, James and Betty, uh, my grandfather, uh, James, he was a perfectionist. In fact, um, two weeks before he died, we decided to bring him home from the nursing home just to give him like about an hour back in his old home with all of his kids and grandkids. And as he was being wheeled out of the ambulance and kind of brought into his home, he noticed two shrubs that were out of whack with the others and told my grandma to make sure they were trimmed so they would be level. Two weeks before he died. Um, he worked two jobs his whole life. He worked, he was the plant manager at the dairy plant here. He also was a farmer, um, so incredibly hard worker. My grandma, also a hard worker, she uh, ran a beauty school right here in downtown, um, and she helped on the farm, and she raised four kids, and so also an incredibly hard worker. And just to let you know how hard of a worker she is, um, you remember this, like on Christmas Eve, I told my wife, I said, you know, my, my grandma had just got out of the hospital, by the way. She had, my dad's a pastor, he's preaching, she fell out in the middle of the service and had to be resuscitated went to the hospital for a week, got out. She's 88 years old, okay? She's out of the hospital. I call her with my kids. I'm like, hey, I got a present for you. Just want to let you know I'm coming over to give you a present. It's now a good time. It's like 10 a.m. And she said, actually, I'm a little busy right now. I'm like, it's 10 a.m. and you're 88 and you almost died, right? You know, it's like, what could you possibly be doing? I was like, well, I'm going to bring you the present anyway. And so I go to the house, I give her the present. And when I do, she says, oh, I got something for you too. Hands me a broom and says, can you sweep the porch for me while you're here? Right? And so, right, that lets you a little bit in. My mom has also basically worked two jobs for her life. She works in the school district. Um, she also works as a, in, in kind of the context they're in, as a pastor's wife, which is like, is that context is like, you're the first lady. So like, you know, you like lead the women in, in many ways. So very involved in the church. My dad has worked two jobs his whole life. He's worked at Monroe since he was 18 years old, is finally about to retire at 65 in July, but is also pastor to church. And so he's never really had a Sabbath. I mean, he works Monday through Friday at Monroe, and then Saturday and Sunday he works for the church. And for me, as I begin to think about that, what I realize is as a kid, I grew up and I watched my parents and I watched my grandparents and I asked the question, when is enough enough? And for me, the answer was never. You keep pushing. You keep working. You value efficiency in getting things done. And, and, and I share that again, not to like throw my parents or anybody else under the bus, right? And, and in fact, let me just say this. Like the purpose of doing this, I want to make this very clear. The purpose is not to shift the blame or go on a witch hunt. If you do this and a week from now you're bitter at your parents or grandparents, you're doing it wrong. Like the goal of doing this is to grow in self-awareness, to be honest about the good stuff in your family and the bad stuff so that you can be honest about where you are so that you can then go as you are to Jesus, to the one who alone can break our chains and heal our wounds. And a lot of that this morning, the way I want to end is I just want to proclaim the gospel over you. And so if you will, you can just read this on the screen with me or just hear this spoken over you. This is Acts chapter 13, verse 38, because I know this is a heavy subject this morning. And I want to end with a word of encouragement to you. In Acts 13, verse 38, listen to these words in light of what we've talked about this morning and where we're going over the next few weeks. 
Acts 13, verse 38. Paul says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers or sisters, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. I just want to stop right there and say this. Some of you are dealing with some deep-rooted sin issues that go back for generations, and you feel a lot of shame over that and a lot of guilt over that. You maybe even beat yourself up and listen. What you need to know is you will never change if you cannot learn to forgive yourself. And you will never be able to forgive yourself if you do not believe that God has forgiven you in Jesus Christ. Some of you are sure this morning that God must be mad at you. And because of that, you are mad at yourself. And if that is where you are this morning, God says, okay, it's time to change the subject. Let's stop listening to the voices in our own head or the voices from our past or what others have said to us. And I want you to listen to my voice. And what does God's voice say? The forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. If you've trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it does not matter who you are or what you have done. You are fully, 100%, past, present, and future forgiven. And that is great news, but it gets even better because look what he says in verse 39. And by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from, what's the next word? Everything. Everything. Hey, what's not included in everything? What's not included in everything? Nothing. Nothing. Everyone who believes is freed from everything which could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now here's my question as we end. In light of this conversation today, is there anything this morning, right now, as you sit here, you think, man, I wish I could be freed from that? Is there anything that maybe goes back even for years that you feel like has been enslaving you? If so, listen to the good news. Through this man, Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything. Even the places that you hate the most, God loves. And the reality is today, he wants to walk with you in the darkest and most undesirable places that you can imagine so that you can break free from the addictions and the idolatry and the unhealthy ways of relating to yourself, God, and others so that you can experience not only the forgiveness, but also the freedom that you are longing for. Each week, we remember this by partaking of communion. We have two stations in the front, two in the back, a gluten-free option for you if that's your thing in this corner. And here's what I just want to say. If you are here today and you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, we invite you to come and partake of this, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice. If you are here and you are not a Christian, please hear me. As I say each week, I am so glad you're here and I hope you keep coming. But listen to me, you will never experience the freedom and the fulfillment that you are longing for apart from Jesus Christ. And so today, rather than coming and just taking a piece of bread that we got from Walmart and dipping it in some grape juice, partake of Jesus. Receive him. He is here. He has proclaimed forgiveness. Now you just have to receive it. And if you want more information of how to do that, I'm going to be standing right here. Come and talk to me. I'd love to talk with you about the next steps in your life. For the rest of us, again, two stations in the front, two in the back. As the band comes forward, I'm going to invite you to stand. I want to pray. And then if you want individual prayer for anything as well, come and talk with me. I would love to pray with you before we're dismissed. I'm going to pray for us. We will partake of communion. We'll sing one more song. And then we'll head out. Let's pray together.
Father, I can't help but believe in a room this size that there are not some people right now who feel stuck in some unhealthy patterns in their life, who feel lonely, who feel hopeless, confused, scared, angry at themselves, maybe angry at those in their past they have not been able to forgive. God, I pray that right now that you will help us to see ourselves as you see us. That we'll be honest about where we are this morning and that we will come to you as we really are. And that we will trust that in you, Jesus, is the healing and the forgiveness and the freedom that we truly have been created to experience. Holy Spirit, right now, would you help us as we move forward in the next week to become more and more aware of maybe patterns in our life, of lies we've been believing, that we've been living into, that you want to help set us free from for our good and ultimately for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.